despite it being 2021, we are still bombarded with false images of women having fast and fabulous orgasms from thrusting alone. Men are told that their penises, thrusting hard, lasting long, is the key to women's orgasms, and that's not true. Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency, and on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is the amazing Dr. Laurie Mintz, and she has come up with a much-needed guide to the source of our deepest energy, pleasure, and power, the clitoris. She's written two books, and guess what? Both are sold out. I say this often, but the clitoris is the only human part on a woman that is designed just for pleasure. A man doesn't have this part on his body. It's only the woman. So let's get to it. Welcome, Laurie. Dr. Laurie Mintz, welcome to the show. How are you? I am great. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, as you know, I'm slightly obsessed with you. I love both of your books. I have them here, Becoming Cliterate and A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. You seem like a lady who knows where it's at in that regard. <laughs> I, I hope so, personally and professionally. <laughs> so talking of that, how did you go from a professor, a psychologist, specializing in eating disorders to becoming a woman who really understands the orgasm and how to have passionate sex. Tell us the story. So the story is I always knew I wanted to be a therapist, but being a sex therapist was never on my radar. And I was a professor and a therapist for many years. I still am. And I specialized in eating disorders. And I made up, up through the ranks in the tenure system here till full professor and I always asked my clients about sex because it's something I think is really important and I'm comfortable with. And anyway, it was all born out of a kind of existential crisis. When I got to be full professor, I sort of said, oh my gosh, what is it? I, I, I've been on the hamster wheel for so long. What do I really want to do? Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want to write for the public, not just these silly journal articles I'm publishing for other academics. And then I thought, what do I want to write about? I want to write about low sexual desire because at that time, every single woman I knew, including my clients and myself and my friends and my relatives were struggling with it. So anyway, that is how it all began. And I did, you know, deep dive into the research and the literature, found some new things, found a way to package it. Out of that came a tired woman's guide to passionate sex. And then I took a position at the University of Florida teaching human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. And that's when, oh my gosh, Kate, the orgasm gap came to life for me. It was no longer statistics. It was people's pain, my students' pain. And I started teaching to closing the orgasm gap and I would get notes, lovely, lovely notes. Thanks to your class, I'm orgasmic. Thanks to your class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I thought, I cannot keep this in my classroom at the University of Florida. I want to 
write a book and solve this cultural problem once and for all. Mm -hmm. So tell us what the orgasm gap is. So the orgasm gap is the Mm -hmm. consistent finding in the research literature that when cis women and cis men get it on, the women are having substantially fewer orgasms than the men. So Mm -hmm. just a few striking examples. In one study where they didn't ask the context of the sex, was it a hookup, was it a relationship? 39% of women versus 91% of men said they always or usually always orgasm during a sexual encounter. That's a huge gap. Mm -hmm. And we know from other research that while the gap is largest in hookup sex and it closes in friends with benefit sex and it closes even more in relationship sex, it never ever closes altogether. Even in relationship sex, by and large, women are having one orgasm to every three male orgasms. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as we know, our anatomy is very similar to a male's anatomy. Ours is just internal versus their anatomy, which is external. So why is that? Is it because we are not getting the stimulus that a man automatically gets from entering us. So what, what's the science behind this? Why is there such a gap when essentially we have the same parts? Yeah, we do. The penis and the clitoris are analogous organs, and I could even go through which part is analogous to which, but we do know that the overwhelming majority of women and we're talking any, depending on how the question is answered, four to 15 to 18% can orgasm from penetration alone. The other 85 to 96% need external clitoral stimulation to experience orgasm, either alone or coupled with penetration. But despite it being 2021, we are still bombarded with false images of women having fast and fabulous orgasms from thrusting Mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. Men are told that their penises, thrusting hard, lasting long, is the key to women's orgasms. And that's not true. And so even the language we use, which we could get into, we use the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same, foreplay, like it's just a lead up to the main event. So the bottom line is there's lots of causes, but the biggest cause is that women are not getting the clitoral stimulation they need during sexual encounters with men. The whole thing revolves around penetration, which is not the way most of us orgasm. Mm. Okay, well, we're going to get back to all of this because I want to dissect it all and really, really understand what's going on here. But I just wanted to talk to go a little further back, and there's a great section in your book about the history of women's orgasms. And it's absolutely fascinating. So take us back to years gone by when women were considered crazy and they would go to their doctors. Well, you tell us the story because you've written about it in your book and it's absolutely fascinating. The history of our pleasure and how it had a negative connotation back then. Yeah, and and I think we're still dealing with that now. So the bottom line of that chapter is to show that the clitoris, 
women's main organ for orgasm, has been lost and found, lost and found again over the centuries. And women's sexual pleasure has been diminished. And without getting into every aspect of the history, because it's a short chapter, but there's been books and books written just about the history, that, you know, we've gone through so many eras where women were actually not supposed to have sexual pleasure. Like it was, women didn't. They, it was not supposed to be for us. Two women, were, we were supposed to have orgasms, but through penetration only. And if we didn't, we would be called frigid. Even textbooks have shown the clitoris, taken it out in medical school, shown it, taken it out. And in fact, there is just such a long history of erasing women's pleasure. And the biggest culprit, I think, is still Freud to this day. He basically said that as women mature, they will transfer the sensitivity of their clitoris to their vagina. Like that's like saying when you grow up, you'll stop breathing out of your nose and you'll transfer it to your ear. We don't do that. Organs don't trade places with each other. No. But he really said clitoral orgasms were immature and women should have orgasms from penetration alone. Mm-hmm. And we, we're still dealing with this. It, it's, it's steeped into the very fabric of our culture still mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this is the wrong way to orgasm. And the lucky ones, the good ones, orgasm from thrusting alone. Oh, wow. I mean, oh, it's so interesting and unbelievable. But to get back to that time when women would go into the doctors, I read here in your book, and he would basically masturbate a woman to cure depression, right? Well, so here's the story, but there's something yeah. interesting that I have to back up. So the story that I tell in my book and that many other writers tell in their book is the following, which is unfortunately just been recently disproven. So I have to tell you what I say, and I have to say, sorry to say it's not accurate. This was one of those lies that have been told, but it doesn't diminish the importance of vibrators. So as the story goes, women were having hysteria back in the day. And they would go to their doctors and the doctors would masturbate them to orgasm and their hysteria would be better. Basically, they were just sexually frustrated. And the story goes that the doctor's hands got tired and that's how the vibrator was invented. And that story has been passed down from sex therapist to sex therapist to sex therapist. It's been written about. And just recently, someone did a major dive into that story and found out that there is no proof of it. So Mm. I can't really tell you that that's true anymore, Mm. even though it's a great story and I used to love to tell it. It was juicy. juicy. But the bottom line is it doesn't matter how the vibrator was invented. We Mm. do know that from research today that women who use vibrators have easier and more powerful and frequent orgasms and a male partner's acceptance of his female partner's vibrator use is highly correlated, related to her sexual satisfaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So needless to say, you're, the, you're a fan of the vibrator. A huge fan. 
Yeah. Massive fan. Yeah, me too. And you encourage it also during sex with, you know, bringing it in and using it as part of your overall pleasure with your partner or without your partner, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And are there any particular vibrators that you like, that you recommend? Well, I think everybody responds very differently. So I think people have to experiment with what works for them. I was just talking, I do have some recommendations, but funny enough, I was just talking with someone who works at a sex toy store and he was telling me that people will come in saying, my favorite vibrator from 20 years ago broke. I can't find it. I need this one. I need yeah. this one. So yeah. it really is a, what works for you. Although my my favorite, my two favorite vibrators, oh, all of my favorite vibrators, although they're expensive, they come from a company called Lilo. And yeah. the reason I like them is they are very high quality. They're made of medical grade silicone. Mm -hmm. They're very creative, very aesthetically pleasing, have multiple speeds and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Now let's talk about desensitization because, you know, I do hear from a lot of women that, you know, they use their vibrator and of course a man cannot compete in a way, right? With that. So what do you, what do you say about that? And, you know, are, are men going out of fashion because the technology world is kicking in, you know, with femtech and all these fantastic inventions like the lioness that tracks your sensations? I mean, how can men possibly compete? Well, they don't need to. Okay, I'm gonna address two myths. One, they'll desensitize you, and two, they're replacement. Let me start with the first. Mm -hmm. So first of all, vibrators do not replace men. They don't kiss, they don't cuddle, mm -hmm. they don't make you laugh, they don't mm -hmm. say I love you, mm -hmm. they don't hold you. All they mm -hmm. do is provide very powerful stimulation. We know yeah. clitorises and penises actually love the sensation of vibration. Penises, fingers, and tongues don't vibrate. And people have, this one isn't a lie or a, a lie that's been passed down. In the old days, women would put bees in a box and close it up really tight because what happens when a lot of bees are in their box? And they'd hold it to their vulva. Women have been trying to get vibration on their vulvas for centuries. So they don't replace men. And here's the metaphor I like a lot. If you were swimming with your partner in a swimming pool and you had a lovely day and you had a raft in the pool and you jump off the raft, you jump on the raft, you giggle, you hang on the raft, you wouldn't call your friend at the end of the day and go, oh, my raft and I had such a lovely day. Oh, and my boyfriend was there too. You wouldn't even mention the raft. Yeah. It's just a tool and the vibrator is the same and it can help men too because yeah. it takes the pressure off of them. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's that. And then the desensitization thing. Yes. Some people will say if they use it too long, they go numb. Well, first of all, don't use it so long that you go numb. Second, if you do, you ever ride a bike and your butt goes numb, what do you do? You get off the bike mm -hmm. and it gets mm -hmm. on numb, it gets better. And the issue when people talk about desensitization is really one of, if I get used to orgasming with my vibrator, I'll always need it. And to that I say, so what? 
then just bring it with you every time. We don't say to men, oh my, if you get used to orgasming from intercourse, you might always need that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all do that, whether it's hands or intercourse or vibrators, we get used to a certain type of stimulation. And if that works, keep doing it. If you Mm -hmm. get sick of it, mix it up. But the idea that sex without vibrators is better, you know, worse than sex with, with is just an idea. It's Mm -hmm. time has passed. Get, let's get rid of it. Yep. Yep. That's very good. Now I understand, I've been told that there are eight different types of orgasms and you do write about this in your book, that there are different types of orgasms. How many are there and what are they? Well, actually, this is very complicated. <laughs> there are not really different types of orgasms. There are orgasms from different types of stimulation. Mm-hmm. So the orgasm physiologically is the same wherever the stimulation is occurring. It's, it, and it's the same with men and women. It's due to erectile blood flowing in the erectile tissue, staying there till it reaches a high level and then being released with rhythmic contractions of the pelvic floor. So women can reach orgasm from a variety of types of stimulation, vaginal stimulation, breast stimulation, clitoral stimulation. Mm-hmm. And there's still scientists are still debating whether vaginal stimulation and clitoral stimulation are similar and there's good evidence on both sides. And I could get into that if you want, but the bottom line is this narrative around women's types of orgasms has been used to fuel insecurity and to create an orgasm hierarchy. This kind's the best, this kind's the best, try this kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't do that with men's orgasms. It's part of the patriarchy. We don't say, oh, do you have an orgasm, blowjob orgasm? or an intercourse orgasm. We don't label men's orgasms by the site of stimulation and then declare one better than the other. We only do this when it comes to women's orgasms. Mm -hmm. Now, I know because I talk to my girlfriends about this all the time that a lot of our orgasm, as you say, comes from different parts of our body, but the biggest organ is the brain, right? And there's all sorts of barriers that we go through, as in, Am I taking too long? Does the dog need feeding? There's a noise outside. I have to start all over again. And you do talk about this in your book as well, about how we are just wired different and need different things. What are some of these barriers and and why do they exist? And why is it so common, right? When you talk to women, I'm sure you came across this doing research for your book, it's all the same stuff. Like when we talk to each other about this, it's, you know, it's over and over again. Like I, you know, I feel like I want to please him. I want him to think he's a stud. You know, we've got all this stuff going on, which prevents us from getting there, right? From being fulfilled. So talk to us about that a little bit and how do we overcome it? Yeah. So we know that both women and men get distracted during sex, but women get more distracted. We think more about, do I look okay? Do I smell okay? Is he having fun? Am I taking too long? You know, all of that. Am I vampy enough? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, I forgot to return that phone call. It can it can be all over the map. Yeah. And you cannot have an orgasm with your brain turned on. Basically, to re- have an orgasm requires not thinking at all, but just feeling, being having your mind and your body in the same space. And that's very hard, but we know it's necessary. And the key is two things. One I write about in my book and one I haven't, which I will share. The biggest key is mindfulness, which is basically mindfulness is sex's best friend. It's putting your mind and your body in the same place. You know, because so many times we're not in the same place. Our mind can be 10 miles, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that while we're talking to a friend or when we're in the middle of receiving oral sex. So the key is learning to put your mind and body in the same place. And the best way to do that is mindfulness. And it doesn't mean your mind will never wander, but it does mean that you notice it wandering and you're able to bring it back to your sensations. And what I find fascinating is brain research shows that a state of deep mindfulness meditation is very similar to the brain state right before Mm -hmm. orgasm where you are not thinking at all. So I really recommend people learn mindfulness in their Mm -hmm. daily life, practice it, and then apply it to the bedroom. Now, some people just are too anxious, like they cannot do it, in which place I think fantasy can help turn that off. So either anything to get your busy brain turned off, fantasy, mindfulness, fantasy followed by mindfulness, mindfulness alone, that's the antidote. Yep, yep, yep. Which leads to porn, right? Now, I actually had a porn star on the podcast. I haven't aired it yet, but... It was a male porn star, and it was very interesting to understand the world of porn, what it's like to do the job. And we know that both men and women watch porn. It's still obviously taboo and often hurtful and destructive, especially if there are addicts. What's your stance on this? And like me, I know you believe in fantasy and storytelling and whatever it's going to take, but Tell us about porn and the use of porn, because I know you do talk about it in your book also. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's one of the most complicated topics out there. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny you asked this today because I just reviewed the literature because that's what I'm lecturing on in about an hour and a half in my class uh-huh. today. So porn is here to stay. Let's just establish that. It's not mm-hmm. going anywhere. Nope. So there are different types of porn, right? There's porn that is very degrading to Mm -hmm. women. And then there's porn that's more on the erotic end where women's pleasure is taken into account. But the vast majority of porn does not accurately portray women's pleasure. And people use it for role modeling and that's bad, really bad. I mean, I've Mm -hmm. had many students tell me stories of men kind of acting out what they saw in porn because they assume that she likes to be choked without being asked, et cetera. Okay, so that's one harmful aspect. But in terms of this word addiction, the latest thinking, honestly, in the research pretty much shows that most people do not get problematic use with porn. 
For most of us, it's arousing and it doesn't hurt us. And Mm -hmm. in fact, there's some benefits. And sometimes when I have working with clients with low desire, I'll have them watch porn to Mm -hmm. get more aroused. But there is a small subset of the population, women and men, who have problematic use. The American Association of Sex Counselors, Therapists, and Educators say, let's not use the word addiction. It's not an addiction. It's problematic use that may be splitting hairs, but addiction models of treatment are very shaming. And what we know is that people who are more likely to develop a problem, it's really not about the porn. It's about their life. Yeah. It's about loneliness. It's about like for some men, they have erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. and they, they don't, they're scared to be with a woman, so they rely on porn more. It's like a chicken and egg question. So it's really the best treatment is not let's just vilify porn. It's like, what could you do in your life differently mm-hmm. that would yeah. not have you sitting at home watching porn so much? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a little bit like eating disorders or alcohol, right? It's the same thing. A lot of it is you trace back to your family or it's control. So porn addiction is not about being addicted or wanting a lot of sex. It's It comes from other issues. Right. And it can wreak havoc on a relationship and on a yeah. person's life. But I think it's like somewhere between like 9% of users develop problems. Mm. It's, it's really a small number, but we hear about it a lot. Yeah, we do. Uh, and, you know, what I worry about, as you said, is it's where young boys and young girls are getting their education now because sex ed is not adequate enough in schools. So, uh, you know, and kids, I believe, as young as 11 are watching porn, which is disastrous on our development and our education of how we depict women. Absolutely. Both men and women, right? It's just all around not good. And that's a regulation thing, right? You know, Facebook and Instagram are very quick to ban educators, companies like the Body Agency that are talking about vulvas and vaginas in an educational way, but you can just click on Pornhub and which you get to often through those social media channels. Let's switch channels a little bit and talk about some of these barriers again that girls and women have with their partners, especially male partners, where they find it hard to communicate what they want. They're embarrassed. They feel shame. They don't feel adequate. They want to please the man. And it's been drummed into us, right? It's been drummed into us by our parents that, you know, it's it's history. It's our culture. So, you know, we're embarrassed. And a lot of this is about communications. I know that for young girls, there's so much pressure to get the guy, right? And once you've got the guy, to please the guy and... God forbid you're going to tell him that he's not doing this right. You might lose the guy. So what advice do you have in that regard? I mean, I remember the struggles I had when I was a young girl. There was no way I was going to say, do you want to try this? Or I didn't have the confidence. Right. Where does that come from? Yeah, it, it comes from our socialization. And as you're saying, 
And, you know, there was a study that just floored me that most women say that they could never tell a new partner about the clitoral stimulation they need because it would be too pushy, pushy. And it's like, wow, we think it's pushy to say what we need. That's the bottom line because of our socialization. But it isn't pushy. Why is it pushy for us to say what we need? And the so there's two solutions to this, is really empowering women to understand that their pleasure is equally as important. And let's get rid of this, if it's good for him, it's good for me mentality. And teach people. And see, I think sex ed is the key. Teach yep. people about women's ways of orgasm, teach people consent, teach people communication. (laughs) (laughs) I'm holding up the vulva puppet here that has a very large clitoris, which its only purpose in this little organ of ours is pleasure, right? Right, exactly. It's the only organ in the human body, male or female, whose sole purpose is pleasure. Yeah, And yet we we're ashamed to say the word. We're ashamed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We consider it pushy. We fake our orgasms. And it's all related to these false culture. I'm not blaming women and I'm not blaming men. I am blaming culture. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have a percentage of women who fake orgasms? Do we know that? Yes, we do. 68%. 68%. 68%. Now, that doesn't mean they fake every time. But if you ask women, do you fake orgasm? Have you ever faked orgasm? 68% will say yes. Wow. Okay, now this comes to another topic, and it involves the macho man, right? But let's be honest, there's a lot of them out there where they're like, oh, no, my, you know, gets back to when Harry met Sally, right? Oh, I love that scene. Oh, I know. I love it. I just played it at a a conference I was a speaker at. I was talking about the future of sex. And I actually played that scene where Meg Ryan faked an orgasm in the deli. It's delicious. It's 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 so good. It's so good. But the point is, and I've experienced this myself, where I'm like, I'm going to whip out the vibrator, okay? And when men say, well, why do you need that? Am I not enough? You know, have you used that with other men? You know, all these barriers because of, again, the society that we live in, men-driven pleasure is a barrier to us because men believe, I don't know, have they been told by their parents? Have they been told by their brothers? Like, where is it coming from where the man will be dead against you using a vibrator because he thinks that he's enough? In his mind, I think you say it in the book, which is brilliant, you know, if you thrust hard enough, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's all going to happen like the movies. So negotiating, it's a little bit like negotiating condom use, negotiating vibrator use, massive barrier. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we know women who use vibrators have easier and more frequent orgasms. A man's acceptance is correlated with his female partner's sexual satisfaction, and to me, this it goes all back to education and false images. We have so many false images. You don't have to look very hard. Porn, regular mainstream movies, mm. you know, every 
sex scene except very few. There's very little foreplay. The man mm-hmm. puts his penis in the vagina and the woman is instantly ecstatic. And in real life, not only would that not cause an orgasm, it would generally cause pain. And we also know that 30% of women say they had pain at their last instance yeah. of penetrative sex. Yeah. And while a lot of sexual pain is a medical disorder and you must see a physician if you're having it, a good per- high percentage is due to having penetration before you're aroused enough. Mm-hmm. And these false mm-hmm. images are, you know, and we don't teach women to expect pleasure. And we, we have this myth, oh, it should hurt, it will hurt. And it doesn't have to, and yeah. it should be pleasurable. And it's, I think not only do we need sex ed, we need sex mm-hmm. ed that includes media and porn literacy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is what we're doing at the Body Agency. So I'm very happy to hear you say that because I'm all about the solution, right? We know what the problem is, but what's the solution? And, you know, a massive barrier to the world is religion and politics. You know, look what's happening in Texas. It's like the Handmaid's Tale. It's men in suits in politics who have said, we're not going to allow this. We're not going to give women the right to choose what they're doing with their bodies. And it starts with abortion, then it goes to family planning, and then it goes to sex. You know, it's it's about access, but we've got all these blockages of religion and politics. And I absolutely 1000% agree with you, Laurie. It's about scientific, accurate sex ed to kids and adults who are developed enough to be able to understand it and deliver it in a way that they can relate to. And it doesn't exist. You know, 50% of schools in America don't even do sex ed. Nothing. You are speaking my language. I could not agree more. First of all, did you know in Texas you can own more guns than sex toys legally? Like, I mean, it's just, it is like The Handmaid's Tale. And it's so scary how our bodies are being regulated in so many ways. And the Society for Adolescent Medicine actually came out with a position paper where they basically said the sex ed system in the U.S. today is a human rights violation. Why? Wow. Because a fundamental human right is access to accurate information. Mm. And we are not we are not only withholding information in sex ed, it's okay to tell bold-faced lies. And I've heard some whoppers that things, I had a student, this is the one that's just, this is in Florida in the last five years, okay? Her sex ed teacher told her, if you have intercourse before marriage, your vagina will mold to the shape of the man's penis and your future husband will never be happy. Who are these people? We are allowed to lie. It's like, can you imagine if we were allowed to tell kids, you know, two plus two equals six because we don't like the number four? That's what this is. Well, I remember a senator here in Washington, D.C. saying, I won't mention his name, but he said it, he even said it to me. We went down with one of our celebrity ambassadors and he said, you know, you get AIDS from kissing. And I was like, um... That's just wrong. Right. <laughs> Why are you saying these things? And it's, again, power. It's power. A lot of these issues are based on power, power of the church, 
power of politics, taking control of women's bodies. I could not agree more, Kate. So if you could do three things in the world, Laurie, for women's pleasure, what would those three things do that you believe would break these cultural norms? Oh, gosh. Okay. Ah, that's a great question. I just thought of that. (laughs) I love it. So first of all, I would institute age-appropriate sex ed in the schools, starting in kindergarten and going through high school. Like, and in kindergarten, we can name our body parts. This is your nose. This is your vulva. (laughs) This is your clitoris. This is your elbow. Yeah. And by high school, we can be talking about consent, contraception, orgasm, porn literacy. So honestly, I think that would solve all the problems, that one thing. But there's so many layers to what we need to teach. And I think we should also back up while we're at it, since this would only help the kids in school. I think we should have widespread catch-up sex ed for all the parents and adults. And, um, you know, we should just be destigmatize women's pleasure. Let's talk about it. Let's sing it from the rooftops. Let's give out vibrators, you know, mm-hmm. you know, maybe give one to every college woman during her orientation. <laughs> mm. So we know that a large part of women who struggle with their pleasure is religion based, as in Muslim women, Orthodox Jewish women, a lot of arranged marriages where you're forced into a situation with a stranger, basically. Is there any hope for these groups of women? I mean, I really worry. We all watched the Netflix Unorthodox of her journey as Mm. an Orthodox Jewish woman and her struggle with the mother-in-law coming in with with the vibrator, which is amazing, right? That, you know, they're looking at this in a scientific way, as in, you know, go away, use this, get ready for your husband. How are we going to overcome that? How do we reach groups like this who really need help? I mean, let's be honest, the world is going to be a much better place if everyone is having pleasure, both men and women. Yeah. I wish I had the answer to that, Kate, but I think, you know, a story comes to mind for me. After I published Becoming Cliterate, someone wrote me and said, and it was a really like upsetting moment until my friend said something to me. This woman wrote me and said, women are being stoned to death and you are talking about the clitoris, like how superficial, how ridiculous. And for a minute, I was taken aback. Well, more than a minute, I was like, she's right. You know, I can't believe I'm putting my effort into this. There's so many worse problems you know, I should be, and then my friend, my very dear friend said, Lori, the orgasm gap and the stoning of women are both related to the same root cause, misogyny and a devaluing of women. You are on the right track. And yes, this, this is a step to liberation. Yeah. Absolutely, 1,000%. And let's break this down as our final words. If women are having pleasure, we will have less divorce. We will have healthier families, healthier women, 
I mean, let's be honest, an orgasm, just breaking it down is very good for you. An orgasm a day keeps the doctor away. Pleasure leads to access, access to women for contraception so they can plan their families. I mean, there's so many benefits to this. It is all interlinked. And you're doing amazing work. We thank you. I encourage everyone to get the, I know it's sold out right now, but becoming clitorate, you can get it on audio. And there is also a tired woman's guide to passionate sex, reclaim your desire and reignite your relationship. Dr. Laurie Mintz, you're my heroine. Thank you for the work that you do. And you can all go to the body agency to find these books. And uh, I know you have to go off and teach a class now, Laurie, but the world is uh, the world is lucky to have you. Thank you for your work. Well, right back at you for you, Kate, and all that the body agency does. We are definitely working towards the same cause. And it's been such an honor and pleasure to talk to you. So thank you. If you will have us, we would love to have you back on the show because we've not even touched the sides. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) There's way more to talk about and I would be honored to. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, podcast10. Thanks for listening.